0: And welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. Uh, Nizar Hassan is off this week, but we've got uh, a great guest for you. Nasser Yassin, the Director of Research at the Asam Ferris Institute. So happy to have you. Welcome to the show. Um, good morning. It's really a pleasure to be with you, to this morning. And uh, we'll have a, a great uh, podcast. I'm very happy to have you this, uh, this week as well, because you guys have this gigantic conference coming up next week on the issue of refugees, which is the topic that we're going to talk about today. I mean, absolutely. The This is the second forum
1: we do. We call AUB for refugees, and this is a forum where actually we tackle all the refugee issues in Lebanon and the region from interdisciplinary perspectives. We use, you know, we get engineers, doctors, health practitioners, uh, political scientists, economists coming together to really go into uh, some of the issues in an interdisciplinary way. So it's going to be hopefully a great forum this year, uh, this Tuesday at Wednesday, 27, 28 November.
0: All right, great. And uh, we're going to get to the issue of refugees here in a minute. But first, of course, uh, the news of the week. First off, happy Independence Day, 75th year uh, of independence. Uh, we we talked about this uh, at length uh, last week, but yes, uh, Thursday was the Independence Day. There was the parade and everything, the military parade and everything. You had a bunch of politicians coming out making statements, uh, a lot of officials coming out and you know doing the normal you know dog and pony show, so to speak, uh, uh, that happens on Independence Day. Uh, but you also had protesters. Uh, and, and I mean, not, not a whole lot of them, but like uh, people sort of like from the You Stink movement and and uh, uh, Beirut Medina Tea and stuff like that. They protested on Independence Day, you know, basically saying like, this is bullshit. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, we, we don't really have a state. We don't really have a government. What, you, you guys, the politicians, you have not been able to solve the basic problems that we have at, as a society. Things like water and electricity, and, you know, basic provision of services. I mean, the the, uh, Independence Day is um, honestly
1: just, you know, being narrowed down to the celebration. Um, If you look into what are states, states usually institutions, um, people, and all the symbolism of the state, you know, the flags and the celebrations and the anthem and so on. I think our institutions are at the weakest at the moment. When we look into the way we've been working and dealing with the affairs of running the, you know, the, the country and what people want from the state, they're in shambles at the moment. And, of course, the politicians, we have kind of the... The, the, the weirdest politicians at the moment, where they can go publicly against each other or even doing wrong or violating laws and uh, rule of law and publicly going, you know, and, and doing it without any checks and balances. So we're left with the symbolism. Um, so actually, the demonstration, as modest as it was, I think it was a reminder that people are not happy with all of the uh, running the affairs of the country at the moment.
0: And that really came into sharp relief as well this whole issue surrounding uh, Ramut al and and the floods that happened. So uh, not this past Friday, but the Friday before that, we had a, a big storm here in Beirut and something, there was a video that went sort of viral online of of al-Baida uh, right on the beach there. Water just like coming up out of utility holes, like bubbling out like fountains. <laughs> and this was not just water, this was like sewage and stuff. Um, and it, it turns out that someone... Someone had blocked one of the, like, main exits for the, like, the sewage out to the sea. And that blockage had happened right uh, at the entrance to the new glitzy resort, Eden Bay, which is uh, Wisama uh, uh resort, and that is the uh, former son-in-law of Nabi Berri. So this politically connected guy who built this thing, this very controversial resort right on the beach, and apparently... There just happens to be this uh, this part of the sewer that's blocked after he builds this, right next to his resort. I, I mean, Ramit al-Bayda is the prime location
1: in, in, in Beirut. This is, I mean, a square meter would... Of of any apartment there would cost anything like four to seven thousand dollars, and you know it's weird that um, uh, you would actually find uh, the sewage going in this location in particular, where you would imagine that things are going, you know, smooth. It's well maintained neighborhood and so on, and that has to do with again the weak institutions we have, because Eden Bay was built illegally on uh, on the shores and uh, and it was on public land or actually violating uh, the use of public land on the shore. So, at the end of the day, this optimizes the state of weak institutions, particularly the corruption in in Lebanon, where it just went in this in the metaphor of the sewage, but in reality, it went like a sewage going, you know, in this uh, high prime land or location of, of Beirut. But this is exactly it. This is the corruption. And it can happen anywhere. And it's, it's actually appeared in the form of sewage, unfortunately. But this is the, this is the state of running some of our institutions.
0: Yeah, an apt metaphor for sure. Um, and, and of course, when something like this happens, and you know, like a a very as you point out, like sort of like opulent, high-priced neighborhood, like Ramtha Baida. You saw like the accusations just started flying. Um, no, no politician said it was my fault. No, it was always somebody else's fault. The Beirut mayor, Jamal Etani, said that you know, oh, blocking this line, this was beyond the power of the mayor or the council. Like only the governor could have done something like that, or could have okayed something like that. He also said that he would hold those in the municipality who he said, certainly there are people in the municipality who knew about this. We will find them and hold them responsible. No names, of course, but he he was out there saying, oh, I'm going to go and find out who is actually responsible, not me, somebody else, and hold them responsible. Of course, the governor, Ziyad Shbib, uh, he blamed other people. He blamed uh, Eden Bay. He blamed a few restaurants nearby. Um, he blamed the Council for Development and Reconstruction. And he also blamed Roberi uh, Municipality. Rabieh municipality hit back and they said, no, this is not our fault. We we told the CDR, we told the, you know, water authority of in Mount Lebanon, don't, uh, you know, put this uh, sewage through this. And they, they also hit back specifically at Shbib and, and said that, oh, well, he had sort of okayed or, or fast-tracked certain projects, not necessarily this one, but other other things concerning the sewerage along Ram Baida at, at the behest of commercial interests. I mean, definitely it was
1: weird to, to listen to uh, the, the elected uh, mayor and to other um, senior government officials like the Muhafiz, like the governor and others, don't, not knowing actually who did it. I mean, in, I mean, the weird thing in, in, in Beirut in particular, but also in Lebanon, that you cannot actually put a curtain to your balcony without actually being noticed. <laughs> so with all the weak institutions we have, the police is quite, uh, the ISF, the internal security forces are quite, you vigilant on violating of the building code they come in and there's no way that no one had couldn't have noticed that someone is putting cement into the sewage in ram little that there's no way uh, i mean there's something definitely a corrupt practice that happened or someone who's very protected who did it and they all know about so there's no excuse for some senior politicians or senior officials to act like they're activists When you listen to the mayor, you listen like someone who's as if he's a Beirut Medina activist. Like, ah, I'm sure we will bring someone into investigation, or we need to actually investigate this further. I mean, you're the mayor. You should know all this stuff, and you should actually do your work and do whatever you've been elected to do. But this is, again, the the sad reality.
0: Yeah, and Jamal Atani though, he he did get sort of a... I guess if any of the politicians came out of this sort of looking good, it was him kind of because he went down and he had this like dramatic thing where he was personally down there overseeing the works to like unobstruct the uh, this this uh, sewer line. Right. And so he seemed to be like the man of action. Uh, there are sort of two things going on here as well, though. And one of them is, well, clearly somebody actually blocked it. And, and it seems as though, well, who had a bunch of equipment there? Who did the works there? Well, it was the contractors, Assured Development, who who built Eden Bay. Um, it, it seems to me, at least, like that is likely. You know, the people who actually you know did you know, obstructed the line to begin with. But then they 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 got cover, certainly from somebody. And so there's this political angle to it too, where somebody okayed this or somebody turned a blind eye to this, and and that's where we don't really know. You know, we don't know who that is exactly. We also have, like, MPs getting involved as well in this. Uh, Nazim Najim, uh, who is a a freshman MP, uh, just elected, but also the head of the Public Works uh, and Transportation Committee in Parliament, He, he came out and said, oh, well, you know, we've got to get to the bottom of this. You know, we're going to file lawsuits and all this stuff. And you, I think, rightly pointed out on Twitter that well he actually has another tool at his disposal right absolutely i mean um, i mean
1: i was i was surprised when uh, nazin najim uh, and other mp's they said ah oh, we're going to file a lawsuit against uh, uh, whoever did this. But this is what I do as a citizen, you know? Usually the rule of law, you know, is to be, to protect the citizens because we don't have other way except going to, to the, you know, uh, to the courts or going to the police. Whereas actually as an MP and he's heading a committee that actually has an oversight. So he c- could easily get any minister or official or mayor into a hearing you know the the first thing he could do and this is in the bylaws of the parliament in any other parliaments in the world actually this is what they do they actually have to exercise oversight on the government or on the executive and I don't think he has a clue on, on that role and you should have done it but just get you know the mayors and the minister to for a hearing and if not you can easily get your committee your subcommittee the public works subcommittee to undertake an, an effect finding committee as it's stated in the bylaws i'm not saying it has to go into an investigation but you should go and get the facts and the parliament entitles you to uh, to undertake uh, such and unfortunately he just did and other MPs of Beirut I mean, from across the political spectrum they went into the same probably for the visibility not for an actual fact finding and and actually putting those people responsible.
0: Uh, speaking of water-based disasters, Zahrli's Beradoni River turned red for. For the second time this year, uh, this week as well. <laughs> uh, the first time was in February. It seems as though it was from a sweets company back then, but we don't really know because I, I don't think that there's been like a real investigation to like, or like no real judicial action. I'd have to look at it. I know a few people were arrested the first time, but then they were released pretty quickly. But yeah, I'd, this was this is sort of like the unsolved mysteries, right? And so now it's happened again. And and who knows whether we're going to find out what really happened with this or not. Tani, the Nalitani
1: River, um, unfortunately, has been uh, polluted or being polluted uh for the last 25 years, and it's getting worse and worse every year. Um, Whereas all the uh, industries, all the uh, manufacturing uh, uh, facilities around the Litani just put in their waste there, but also municipalities put in their sewage in in the Litani River. And I, I, I was a student back in the 90s studying environmental science in AUB, and we were actually discussing the Litani as a case study where actually it's being polluted. And nothing has happened. Sadly, since the 90s, so I'm talking about like 25 years of being polluted without any real action, except some, you know, municipalities trying to do some re- recycling. And the way the Litani authority has been, what has been doing at the moment is is commanded. I mean, they've been raising awareness on the subject, but, you know, at, at, in, in essence, they should actually, Take all of those, you know, polluters to, to court. This is how you save the the, the law protects you as an authority because there is a law you cannot pollute. Maybe it's not in, in, in action, but they can take it. They shouldn't act or sound like an activist. Again, we're talking about the mayor sounding like an activist. The Italian authority sounding like an NGO. The the governor sounding like a, a student club. So they should do something that actually... And the MP sounding like a normal citizen who has been hit by a sewage... Uh, uh, issue, you know. They should actually act whatever their, their vocation and whatever their the
0: law actually instains them to do. And and this is serious. And they're not doing it. They're not practicing it. And, and just a quick note, we have colorful rivers here in Lebanon this year. I just want to note that Nahar al-Kelb also turned green in May. So this is a weird recurring issue. It happens in festive seasons, you know, depending on the, it's
1: Christmas, we go red. Maybe it's St. Patrick's, we go green. (laughs) I mean, Uh, sadly, we're just, you know, I mean, out of of the misery, we're just laughing at it. But uh, yeah, that's uh, unfortunately the reality.
0: Yeah. Uh, I just want to quickly note this because we had an episode about this a few weeks back. The new e-transactions law that was passed by Parliament. Nadim Jemail, who heads the uh, Information Technology Committee in Parliament, and Nicolas Satnaoui, who is the former, uh, you know, head, uh, the former minister of telecommunications? They both have agreed that this law needs a total overhaul, especially when it comes to like data privacy. But they, their argument is that, like, yeah, but we still should have passed this law you know, because it's sort of like two parts. There's the e-transactions part and then like the personal data privacy part. We, sh- we still should have passed it because it's a net positive and now we'll work on fixing things. That's their position. SMEX is the, they took the other side of things, of course, right? And they say, well, no, this opens all sorts of like can of worms as far as like potential for abuse and everything when it comes to the data privacy part. Uh, but at, at very least we have them saying, Oh no, we do need to work on this.
1: At the moment, um, I'm doing kind of a study to look into the oversight role of the parliament, and there are forty acts, forty laws that were issued in the last uh, term of the parliament that actually are not implemented, or they've been implemented, uh, you know, in, in a less implemented or half implemented, or and what we're seeing at the moment, and and actually it affects the formation of the government. The current formation of the government, the, the the complexity we see at the moment is related that we're not respecting the constitution, where the division between the you know the authorities should be should be respected. So the parliament is being fully represented in the cabinet, and this oversight role is not is is weak. And we don't see real implementation of laws. So uh, the quality of making laws and uh, making policies has been becoming less and less of high quality in terms of the types of the laws they're being produced, how they're formulated, the articles in these laws, and so on. And this is a serious issue, again, uh, probably they're new MPs, probably because the government is not proposing the laws. And this is another serious matter, you know, when there are some political crises, uh, the usual thing that the government, the cabinet, the executive proposes the laws to the parliament And when the ministers, the cabinet of ministers, propose laws, it means they've been studied well, they've been seen how they can implement them. But what's happening with the political crisis, with the less active government and cabinet and the crises that have been hitting the country since 2005, we see the parliament more active in formulating and issuing these laws and acts, which means they're not well studied, they're not well formulated, they don't look into how they're going to be implemented, they don't see how they're going to be budgeted for. And all of these are serious issues, again, in the work
0: of the state. Uh, and speaking of cabinet, this used to be my favorite topic, of course, cabinet formation. It has become less of my favorite topic since I sort of lost all hope and faith that anything would happen soon. Saturday, we entered the seventh seventh month of deadlock. Saturday was exactly six months since Saad Hariri had been appointed to, to form a government, uh, May 24th, 2018. And actually, a couple days before Independence Day what was the six-month mark for having no government anymore. Right. So uh, half a year, it's been half a year. No government, no government in sight as well. We uh, we're still sort of hung up on this issue of uh, Sunni representation. And this week, all of the talk was about whether that, uh, you know, so-called block of, of six independent uh, MPs, independent-ish MPs uh, would meet with uh, Saad Hariri or not. They met with Basile on Monday and so supposedly according to al-Rahim murad uh, who's one of the six Basile's plan was basically like oh let's fix this hariri'll just give in that, that that was the essence of the plan according to murad like the, uh, like just hariri would appoint the uh, you know one of the six uh, i mean the
1: this is the what's called now the uh, the sunni issue and then we had the Druze and you had the the Lebanese forces, and uh, then you had also the Marada, Franji. So I, I think, you know, um, it's just telling about the way we've been dealing with this, uh, forming the governments, uh, particularly after 2005, but also more significantly after the Doha agreement in 2007. Uh, or was it 2008? I think 2008, yeah. and um, so 10 years, uh, 10 years ago. And the way now we see the uh, cabinet is just a representation of everyone, which is, which is again goes back that we we're, we're just killing the oversight role of the parliament if we need to have everyone represented. But this is the the issue in consociational democracies, and the last cabinet of Tamam Salam, the one before Saad Hariri, lasted for 11 months. Uh, it actually took 11 months to be to be formed uh, saad hariri's also first cabinet took a bit like four months um, in, in, Brussels, in, in in Belgium as a matter of fact it also sometimes takes months to get everyone to agree on so with constitutionalism with actually losing the you know, the way that democracy used to act as having one ruling party and one opposition party it's becoming some kind of the norm and Lebanon is even extreme in this regard so I don't, I don't see it as a dramatic and drastic situation I think it will take time as a way of representing everyone because you need to go into the cabinet, you know, of portfolios and dividing this between the sects and now the political parties and then within the sect we need to have some representation. So I think it's going to be to take time. But the issue of these six MPs, I don't see them, you know, as purely independent. You mentioned independent. <laughs> and I think they are, uh, they're all related to other cabinet, the other blocs, other political parties. And I think we need to look at it in this way and the way that Hezbollah has just put this issue in the last minute. Because everything was ready, and they said, "No, wait. We have this issue that we've been telling you about since six months ago, but you didn't take it, uh, you know, seriously. But it is a serious matter for us. So I think it also tells about how Hezbollah wants to play a role in being kind of the the, the maker, the king maker, the cabinet maker. Like I actually would." Put my, you know, my strength in making the government. It's me actually who who decide on the gab- cabinet and it's uh, its portfolios. I think that's how it is. It's about the power of Hezbollah and proving it at the end of the day.
0: That's that's an interesting take uh, because I think most observers thought that it was like a very much a tactical mistake that Hezbollah had made. But but maybe there's there's more planning to this, or maybe they're they're playing it off as though there was like a a, a bit more to this than just like oh, oops, uh, we. We made a mistake here uh, in, in backing and in, in putting this uh, stance where we have to have one of these six. Regardless, uh, going back to what happened this week, Basile, after the meeting, like, of, of course, the, the six and the MPs agreed with Basile's plan that Haru would just give in. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, no surprise there. Uh, but then afterwards, Basile uh, called for Haru to meet the group. Um, but that's sort of problematic, right? Because if Hariri meet, meets the group, then it's sort of legitimizing them as a block. Um, this, this is a, an argument that uh, was put forth by Sami Fatfat, uh, the, the freshman MP from Denier this week. He, he said that, Fatfat uh, Fat said that Hariri is willing to meet with the MPs, but willing to meet with them separately, right? Not as a block. But the six came out and said, no, it's our right to meet with Hariri as a block. So, I mean, the bottom line here is that Nobody's blinking yet. Uh, there's, there's no, there no seems to be no cabinet soon. And and now you're hearing a lot more serious talk about like, oh, you know maybe before the Arab Economic s- Summit uh, in January, <laughs> maybe by then we'll have a cabinet, which is an, an unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate timeline. But yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: I mean, we we said first was on. Uh... One during the summer, during one of the Aïds, during independence, <laughs> and then during now the the Arab uh, social and economic summit. I, I I don't I don't think you know there is a timeline at the moment. I mean whatever I've been following, they say things are open. I think uh, no one is really serious about uh, resolving it, particularly in, in in negotiating with Hezbollah how to how to deal with it. I think whatever now these six MPs are doing is just you know to keep this uh, issue going with al Hariri back and forth. But the serious matter lies, I think, in, in, in Hezbollah's hand.
0: All right, so our main topic this week is the refugee situation uh, which which is not something that we have discussed yet on the show other other than bits and pieces during news rounds roundups. but basically I, I think anybody familiar with the country knows that that there this is a huge issue. according to UNHCR, there's something like a 950,000 refugees that are registered. There are probably more that are not registered but we don't really know what the number is. But overall, probably something like one in four, or one in five of out of every person living in this country is not Lebanese. They are refugees, uh, either Syrian or Palestinian, what have you. And, 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 and it's also Lebanon has a, a very specific history with refugees, specifically with, with the Palestinian refugees. Uh, when camps were established uh, after the Nakba uh, and, you know, subsequent waves of, of immigration from Palestine, and and the Lebanese people don't didn't want to repeat that with the Syrians, and so they said, "Oh no, we're not going to establish camps or anything." So whereas, like in Jordan or whatever, you had like this sprawling Zaatari refugee camp uh, that that didn't happen here at least not officially there were there, there were no official camps right no I mean there, there are no official camps in Lebanon and and partly
1: because of the uh, history of dealing with Palestinian refugees uh, but also Syrians in Lebanon are at the moment and the moment of the displacement is different from the Palestinians and the way they were displaced from from their homeland in Palestine particularly Syrians know Lebanon and Syrian and Lebanon Lebanon had uh, during the nineties the estimates between half a million to perhaps. 800,000 workers depending on the season and almost almost you know all the Syrians who uh, came to Lebanon had some kind of uh, address they came to an address in places they they had some connection with whether their families or their or their you know had some connection before so it wasn't kind of the mass displacement although it happened in certain locations particularly on the border but in its totality most of the Syrian refugees came to places they had some connection with whether economic social and so on and so forth Uh, So for that reason, you wouldn't have succeeded in having camps. But also, as the crisis gets protracted, and it's actually now it's an eighth year, people leave camps, Uh, refugees leave camps, and camps are not favorable places for them because they need to seek their livelihood opportunities, they need to go find some work, they need to have some, some kids, you know, perhaps in schools, although some camps are well served. So even we see in Jordan or Turkey, senior refugees have Mostly left the camps living outside uh, the camps in towns and villages and neighborhoods. At the moment, uh, the, mass, the vast majority of the senior refugees in Lebanon are actually living in areas and neighborhoods and towns uh, with their host communities, with Lebanese host communities. But the issue that we have that 87% of the Syrian refugees who are poor. 70 to 75% of them are below the poverty line. They live among the poorest Lebanese. They live among where 67% of the poorest Lebanese live. So it's like 1 million Sina refugees living with 1 million poor Lebanese. Um, in those towns that are less served or historically not served by the government or the state, around the Palestinian refugee camps are also neglected. Partly because of the housing market is informal and in these places they can easily rent and they can afford them, of course. But also because, you know, uh, uh, those areas are, uh, are, you know, more open to them. They can actually move into them and live with them. But what we have been, what happens at the moment is that in those places, we see a, a, a double whammy effect of poverty and displacement and less resources and with the current economy being very slow and actually it's been shrinking. So all of these are coming together in those poor Lebanese and poor, poor Syrian refugees and of course poor Palestinian refugees who have been here for many, many years.
0: Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. And and I, I think, first off, I, I, I sort of have to make a confession of sorts. You know, I, I work for the Daily Star, I work in media and everything. And because this crisis has been going on for so long, I'm, I'm certainly not proud of this. But, you know, when when I hear another story about refugees in Lebanon or whatever, I kind of think, again, haven't we talked about this before? You know, there's a sort of um, fatigue that's set in, at, at least, uh, you know, um, amongst uh, the media, I think, on, on covering this issue. And, and I, I feel like that, that fatigue is also beyond the media as well. I mean, definitely. The fatigue
1: uh, has been hitting the refugees themselves, first and foremost. I mean, Syrians, they've been now in the eighth year of, of the crisis. They depleted all their assets as, as small as these assets are. They're getting poorer. Um, they're actually having less resources. With all the support they're getting from humanitarian institutions, organizations, NGOs, and so on, they're not getting better. And that's that's a key thing you know to to look at how I mean, eight years after the crisis, we haven't been managed to even improve some of the conditions i mean some things are going okay but mostly they're in, in, in huge poverty and and misery and living in in really uh, suboptimal places as people in the housing uh, housing sector say but also lebanese are going you know uh, in, in 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 this direction the host communities those poor host communities that host most of them they think they've been you know staying longer than expected they're taking some of the resources these are mostly perceptions but these perceptions are serious when it comes to affecting the social relations between both the Syrians and the Lebanese and things are getting worse in terms of the negative social relations that are existing at the moment and there's also increased what Syrians say verbal harassment in some of the surveys which is around 17 percent N- compared to the Lebanese, let's say only 4% or 3% get harassed in the three. So there's a gap here between the host communities and the refugees. So things are, are not so good at the moment when it comes to a lot of the indicators. But also the donors are fat- are fatigued, you know? <laughs> They're going through a fatigue. The, w- the funding gap has been widening of whatever the UN and international organizations and NGOs have been requesting and whatever they've been receiving. I think this the year is perhaps one of the lowest years. Maybe it's shifting from humanitarian to more development and to more to more uh, loans and through other agencies we have yet to see this but some of the of the sectors of the things that refugees need are being underfunded at the moment and this is also again something that's that's worrying but also eight years into the crisis we get to see this as a normal yeah right yeah i mean i mean you'll see like refugees now they're just poor and they live among the poor Lebanese, so it's your development problem, deal with your poverty. But this is not the case. I think we need to maintain the emergency kind of thinking when we deal with refugees, because those are refugees are entitled for protection because they were kicked from their homes or they were pushed from their homes because of the war or because of killing because of of other acts of, of violence against them. So we need to think of them that they would are entitled for such protection and it's not yet a development problem. It's an emergency problem. It's a humanitarian problem. So we need to offer them help and we need to support them until things get back to normal in Syria. It's not a development poverty problem in host countries like Lebanon and Jordan. It's a humanitarian problem Created by war, created by displacement because of the war.
0: Yeah, what, what you what you say though about those host communities? I I think uh, is something is something we've mentioned on the show before about them getting tired of of having the refugees around and everything. There's this perception, right, that oh they're stealing our jobs, they're doing whatever, and and this translates into um some populist rhetoric uh, amongst politicians that is very popular and and also in the in the media. Uh, stories uh, can really go viral. You know, we, we had the story a few weeks back about a, a tattoo artist who was Syrian, who was uh, either HIV positive or uh, had AIDS. You know, like th- this story just went viral because it, it was sort of like punching down at Syrian refugees. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. Those host communities, our poor host
1: communities, definitely they feel the pressure because they're under-resourced anyway, and they feel that you have more people, one million people, you know, moving into their places. Of course, you're going to feel the pressure. And, um, and whatever they say, even if it's sometimes perception, it's different from what the middle or upper-class Lebanese say about uh, Syrian refugees. And I think this is something to spend a couple of minutes on. So those who experience uh hosting refugees look at it like okay they're taking some of our jobs we don't have enough resources we have more waste, solid waste now which is which are true this is the reality of having one million people moving to poor locations but what we hear in the media and what we hear some politicians is all about the the perceptions that uh, people don't like to see uh, foreigners or immigrants or refugees or poor refugees in particular who look differently who um, uh, have different perhaps, you know, uh, uh, styles than them, who are different religion from them, and this is how they see it. It becomes some kind of a stereotypical position on the refugees because we don't want to have them. Not because they're experiencing having refugees in their neighborhoods, in their towns. But unfortunately we are in the age of anti-immigrants, anti-refugees. And some politicians... It's worldwide. It's yeah. worldwide, exactly. I mean, it starts from North America into Asia, Middle East, Europe of course, and other places. And we see increasingly the rise of populist politicians who want to use the issue of immigration or displacement or refugees in a way to gain and, and, and widen their political capital. And they blame everything on the refugees, which is not necessarily the case. I mean, there's a lot of exaggeration of the impact or the effect of refugees on the job market in Lebanon or on crime or on other
0: social issues. I think these... Yeah, how, how true is that? Because that that's the story that we've been hearing since 2013, I think, at at least. You know, like, oh, they're stealing our jobs, they're ruining our infrastructure. They're. I mean, the, the, the pressure on the infrastructure is real of course because you have one million people definitely yeah ref- but syrian refugees didn't break the the lebanese you know electricity system, absolutely. water system no, absolutely you know you're right
1: i mean the refugee the the electricity uh, you know uh, company has been going in in, in crisis since since early uh, since the late 90s actually i mean way before the refugees have moved to lebanon Unfortunately, the stories of having refugees taking your resources, they go viral and people kind of, you know, uh, 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 like to listen to them and use them. Most of the senior refugees work in the sectors that they usually occupy. That's construction, that's agriculture, and that's cleaning. Most of them. 76 to 77%. Work in these sectors, so there is no real competition, and these these have been historically, you know, dealt or taken by the by by migrant workers before before the civil war Just in Syria. We, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, throughout the nineties, you had the Syrians who were doing the agricultural work or doing the construction work. But what we see at the moment, and this is kind of where where people see the competition happening, um, those young Syrian refugees who came in as children into Lebanon eight years back, they're now. In 18, they're 19, they're 20, so they grow up in Lebanon and mostly they're, they're outside of school they were dropped from high school because the you know the majority of the Syrian kids are dropping out after the age of 14 or 15 they don't get into high school so they're looking for jobs and they're not experienced builders they're not working agriculture living in urban areas so it's going to happen that they will look for these basic jobs in areas where they live in shops, supermarkets, and in salons and in restaurants, and they're going to compete with some of the Lebanese because they're cheaper labor, and they're just looking for any job because they're poor. The economy is slow. You know, there's no uh, movement in the economy, or the cycle is very slow at the moment. So any employer would think of having, like, these informal, you know, uh, workers to come in and do, and there's a great supply of them. So he would definitely, or she would definitely prefer having those informal labor in the workplace. So there is some truth to this whole they're taking our jobs there is some thing. truth there is some truth but it's uh, it's not significant as some people who- want to think of it um, they're competing with each other they're competing with other migrant workers where they're competing with some poor Lebanese of course but this is is, is you know is going to happen because of the way Lebanon as a state has you know being less engaged in creating policies and programs to deal with the refugee crisis is being subcontracted to the NGOs to the UN and to security forces as well to deal with the, the security aspect of of having this large number of people
0: there is this solution to the problem, right? Which is, oh well, they should just go home, right? That that is boil it down to its basic. And it, it, everybody seems to agree with that. It's just a question of timing, Absolutely. right? And and the refugees themselves, like, of course, most of them want to go home if you know the conditions are right. But there, there, there are a couple of problems with that, right? There, there's the issue just of safety. First and foremost, and right now we see this sort of disagreement, the politicians saying like, oh, no, there are safe areas. They can go back. Uh, and other people saying, oh, well, yeah, OK, there are certain safe areas, but maybe their homes are not safe. And then the second issue just being like more, uh, I, guess, I guess, political in nature, although it definitely does affect people's personal security is if, if somebody goes back, will they be pressed into military service? Will they be uh, will they be targeted by the Syrian intelligence agencies or, or any number of, of other potential things that could happen if they were to go back and and so this question of can they actually can they realistically go back right now uh, it, it, it's hard to agree that that the conditions are in place at this point I think absolutely I think the, the, the data we
1: have the evidence we have that the vast majority of them want to go back 89% um, the latest figure would say like they want to go back but are they ready to go back in the next six months or a year? No. The majority, not only in Lebanon, in Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, they're not ready to go back. For the reasons you mentioned, um, 35% of the uh, houses in uh, Syria are destroyed or badly hit, and they need a lot of repair. Um, 53% of the schools are either destroyed, damaged, or used as, as, you know, uh, refugee centers or centers for the displaced, for the IDPs inside Syria. Um, 63% of the hospitals and health facilities are also damaged or destroyed. Teachers, doctors have actually left the country. Uh, So this is still a war situation, not even yet in a post-conflict situation. And perhaps it's getting to a post-conflict situation, but there's no real political process happening. At least it's not significantly taking place. And there's no reconstruction at the moment or a significant reconstruction happening. What refugees would need to return is the conditions to be favorable for them security-wise, as you say, for their safety and security, but also for their you know, livelihood. They want to see uh, opportunities for them. The prices in Syria, have increased throughout the crisis 800 percent so there is huge you know increase in the cost of living inside Syria and there are no real work opportunities at the moment because reconstruction real reconstruction process hasn't yet started so they would prefer even getting the few dollars they have in Lebanon because of the currency you know exchange between the dollar and and, and Lebanon and Syria lira they would prefer to stay even here in Lebanon even with the few hundred dollars they get so Until a political process and reconstruction process are really starting in Syria with a trust of these processes, that they're not going to be, you know, checked by the security, those people are not going to be checked by the security or taken for investigation or any other sort of intimidation. I think we're going to spend more and more time until people return. I would like to remind everyone that in Lebanon, the civil war ended in 1990, 1991. That's kind of 27 years ago and still people some of the people haven't yet returned to their original villages. So these things take time, even in the same country, even when there's some kind of peace, reconstruction, some normalcy have been restored, and people take their time to return because of the reasons that we've mentioned. So we need to deal with this, but people need to go, they want to go, they need to go back to their homes and residence, they don't want to go to any safe zone, they don't, want, they don't want to go to any area inside Syria. They want to go back where they came from. And some of these areas are not yet, you know, safe. They're not yet reconstructed, or they're not yet open to them by the security or by the militias. And all of these need to be taken in consideration. And I want to say something that, you know, uh, uh, Syrians in Lebanon are living in misery. You know, most of them are poor. Their housing is, you know, poor housing conditions. They're not accessing proper education. So they want to go back.
0: Although at the same time, you know, m- mentioning the, these long timescales and the situation, it isn't quite ready yet. There's no guarantee that it, it will be ready for, for a lot of these refugees, even in the you know, next five years or so. Uh, just realistically looking at it, uh, there, w- we could have Syrian refugees here in Lebanon for decades to come and and i think there's there's uh you know really interesting research that's uh, been done by like mona fawaz and others you know talking about how uh, the syrian refugees here like they they've become sort of like integral parts of the community uh in many ways and and sort of and, and and this builds on this very long history in lebanon and in beirut in particular of refugees coming to the city and and then sort of making it their own as well you know yeah i mean exactly um
1: the 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 uh, crisis, uh, refugee crisis uh, Syria and Lebanon um you know when we started to look at the impact of the crisis, um, particularly in 2015, after the Europe, you know, went in a huge crisis about the refugees and moving people, mo- people moving into Europe and so on. And I started asking my- myself the question of, I mean, how these small nations like Lebanon and Jordan haven't actually collapsed because of this large number of people? I mean, the percentage you mentioned earlier, 20, 20- 25% are refugees. How come we haven't seen this, you know, uh, explosion or implosion of these economies and societies? And partly because refugees i mean syrians can be easily integrated in the economy and in society they know the language they share a lot of cultural you know attributes they've been working in lebanon or they know how the markets work in lebanon so for that reason these have absorbed this large number of refugees now the idea of of this resilience or adaptation or adaptive mechanisms would they last forever? That's the question. I think they're like a, a, an elastic cord. You know, they're like you're at the brink of falling and you, you you know, you hold them. And at some point you, I mean, you're working informally, you're getting support from an NGO, you know the community, you've been housed. But at some point this might crack. And what we see now with the fatigue, with the negative social relations, these might crack this elastic cord that has been holding refugees for the last seven or eight years.
0: Oof, well, that is... Uh that, that's sort of a downer note to put it on, but I, I think also something that's uh, a good warning and something that we should all uh, be on the lookout for. If you guys want to hear more, if you're uh, here in Beirut, the conference is on Tuesday and Wednesday, the 27th and 28th uh, at AUB, right? Uh, so uh, uh, come out and, and take a look at that. You, you've you got uh, just sort of like all-star panels uh, going these two days. And Nasir, Asim, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, Nizar will be back next week. And until then, I'm Benjamin Redd. And I'm Nasir Yassin. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
1: The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar el